0: Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series entitled, Out of the Ashes, based on the book of Nehemiah. Last week in our study, we learned that as soon as Nehemiah got his rebuild project off the ground, the people of Jerusalem came under some intense pressure. All the surrounding nations threatened to absolutely gut the people who were working on the wall if that's what it took to put an end to their project. That was terrifying, but it did not have the impact that the opposition hoped. Uh, Yes, initially the people were afraid, but at the end of the day, they were more determined than ever to work together to finish the task at hand. And that's often the impact that pressure has. It brings people together. It's kind of like the flame on a welding torch. You have two separate pieces of metal, but when you bring those together and use that flame, that heat, it melds them together and it produces this unbreakable bond. And that's what happens often with people that when we go through pressure together in the home, in the workplace, in the church, it creates an unbreakable bond between us because we've had the experience together. But that's not all that pressure can do. Pressure also can have the same type of impact on people that heat has on gold. What happens when you place gold in a 2,000 degree furnace? Refines the gold, right? it brings to the surface the impurities that may or may not have been visible to the eye. And that also is often what happens in a group, be it a home or a church, a team, a work environment, when pressure is applied. That all of a sudden some things that have been ignored or buried or overlooked, they come rising to the surface. For instance, give you an example. Nobody ever really noticed that Sister Denise was bullheaded until she was asked to serve on the decor committee for the church remodel, or at least they didn't say anything about it. But now that the committee is just three days away from having to submit a color choice for the carpet for the teen center. Her refusal to consider anything other than orange shag carpet is driving the rest of the committee crazy. I mean, they want to snip her brake lines at this point. Now, that's just a made-up an example uh, based on far too many real experiences I've had in church work over the years. In the same way, this, the pressure of this huge rebuild project well, it brought to the surface a serious flaw within the Jewish community. Many of the Jewish people, especially those with large families, were struggling to survive. There are a lot of different factors that contributed to their poor state. When I me mention those to you. First, they could not do their normal work, their, their day job. For instance, those that Nehemiah called to move into the city in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 22, they were from rural communities. And one of, if not the primary occupation in a rural community, was farming of some kind. Now this was a sacrifice they were willing to make in order to help Jerusalem rebuild. They were were okay with moving into the city, but every day, every moment they spent working on that wall was a moment that they could not spend tilling the ground. Now Derek Kidner makes a great observation. He says this, as good as the rebuild project was, you can't eat walls. Now second, there had been a famine in the land. Due to uncooperative weather conditions, they were already poor. But now that poverty was going to a whole new state because they did not have the ability to work the land. Didn't have the time, didn't have the weather cooperating. And finally, here was a big one, they were experiencing heavy taxation. Now, all of us understand what heavy taxes can do to one's lifestyle, right? We get that. But here's the difference. They didn't get any benefit from their taxes. Zero. That money didn't go towards bettering their school system. It didn't go towards improving their roads. It didn't even go to fund social service programs. What exactly did their money go to? It went to ensure that the king was able to enjoy a life of luxury. That's where it went. So, in order to buy food and pay taxes, many of these Jewish people, they had to go to extreme measures. At best, they were able to take out a high-interest loan, but in many cases, they were forced to mortgage their land or sell their children into slavery. It was a tragic situation, but what made it even worse? was the fact that it was many of their own Jewish brothers who were exploiting the poor. Now, rather than having compassion upon their Jewish brothers and sisters, these individuals, the wealthy Jews, they made the decision, we're going to kind of stick it to you. We're going to price gouge and we're going to strip away your dignity. And somehow, during this rebuild, working on that wall on an empty stomach, it brought this issue to the surface. It refined it. It purified it. He said, here's what's been buried. Here's what's been overlooked and ignored. Here's what nobody's addressing. And all of a sudden, the people had enough. And so we read in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1, these words. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Not always, but in most cases, external pressure, outside pressure, it brings people together, right? Internal conflict, however, it almost always drives people apart. Now, this is one of the reasons that families and workplaces and teams and churches and countries don't always reach their goal because they end up doing battle with each other. This is one of Satan's primary strategies. He loves to stir up conflict within people who should be working together as a team because he knows it just stifles momentum. Nehemiah's rebuild project, it was like a a rocket ship initially. I mean, it just took off. In no time, they had built half of that wall, but now all of a sudden, It's in jeopardy of coming to an abrupt and tragic end. And Nehemiah, he is determined to make sure that does not happen. And so what does he do? Well, first, I want you to notice what he felt. This is what he felt, verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Often we think of anger in negative terms. But there are moments when anger is by far the most appropriate emotion. And this was one of those moments. It was one of those moments because God had made it very clear that He expected the people of God to look out for those who were struggling to survive. We see it in the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. And through the prophets, God kept this expectation of caring for the needy front and center. One example is Zechariah 7, verse 9 and 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppose the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But if injustice in any form or on any scale does not cause one's blood to boil, something's wrong. It points to a serious heart issue. The fact that Nehemiah felt anger at this particular moment was further evidence that his heart was in tune with God's heart, and he was not only the right man to lead this rebuild of the wall project, but he was also the right person to lead the way in reuniting a fractured community. Nehemiah felt angry, but what did he do? Well, first, he took a timeout. We read these words in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. When I heard their outcry on these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. Instead of immediately going on social media and posting an angry tirade about how wrong this was, which typically erases defenses rather than convicts, Nehemiah took a time out to think things through. Now, what exactly did he ponder? Well, I can only speculate. But there are a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. And whether he thought these things or not, I think it's important that we think about these things. The first thought is this, is it true? Is it true? Because that's something that many of us don't seem to want to consider these days. What we seem far more interested in is what I want to be true than what actually is. Can we please slow down long enough to get the facts before we start taking swings at each other? Whether it's about politics or any other matter. Just because there appears to be in injustice does not necessarily mean an injustice has actually occur- occurred. And no doubt at times it does. That is exactly what has happened. But sometimes that's not the case. And please never forget that when we make an accusation of someone being unjust and it's not correct, isn't it true that we're the ones who are being unjust? And Once a false accusation is made, there is no taking back the damage that is done. And so we need to back up, and we need to pause, and we need to take a breath, and we need to find out what is and isn't true before we do anything else. Now, once we are able to identify it, if it is true... Then the second question has to be, how do I best address the situation? Because in moments like this, in situations like this, you usually only have one shot to get it right, and if you come in half-cocked and with not thought through uh, thoughts or information, The odds of you getting to a person to admit that they are wrong and guilty, let alone saying, you know what, I really need to change this matter in my life, they are slim to none. So you gotta get it right. And it seems apparent to me in this text that Nehemiah, he took some time to make sure how to get it right. He took time to think about when and where to meet, and he took time to think about what is the best way possible for me to lay out my case before the people so they might consider what's actually taking place here, which leads to the second thing that Nehemiah did. He addressed the sin. He, He didn't just get angry. He didn't just post something on social media. He didn't just throw up a prayer for things to change. He addressed the sin head-on, which you have to do when injustice occurs. He says this in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, "'I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, "'You are charging your own people interest.'" So I called together a large meeting to deal with him and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? What did the people have to say in response? Nothing. Zip, zilch, nada. We read this in the text, verse 8, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. When you are guilty as charged, there is wisdom in not saying anything, at least for a period of time, because anything you say will probably just do further damage. Trust me on this. Defending, rationalizing, excusing, blaming, downplaying, will just create a whole new set of issues and wounds. So, sometimes it's good to be silent. Now, let me ask you a question. What were the wealthy guilty of? You say, well, already asked and answered. They were guilty of exploiting the poor. Yes, but I think it goes deeper than that. I would suggest to you this morning that the root issue of their sin was selfishness. It was selfishness. And listen, selfishness presents itself in a lot of different ways. It can present itself as price, price gouging. It can present itself as not taking your turn to work on the wall. That's selfishness. But whenever and however it presents itself, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed because very few things will cause as much hurt, conflict, and division among people as selfishness. That's true in the home. That's true in your workplace. That's true here at church. That's true in our country. And so we have to have the courage to lovingly point out to one another when we're acting like selfish brats. Now, that's not very loving, but you get the drift. You have to address it. And what's the best way to deal with selfishness? Well, lecturing others on the evils of selfishness, it may be necessary at times, but that shouldn't be our primary strategy. I would suggest to you that our primary strategy should be to live extraordinarily generous lives. Now, this is the way that Nehemiah lived his life. You'll notice in verse 14 through 16 of chapter 5, that rather than taking advantage of the special food and monetary privileges that were afforded to him as governor, he, he just refused. He just stuck to the task that was at hand. And not only did he refuse to accept what was rightfully his, but he went ahead and shared what he already possessed with others to make sure they were taken care of. And so in verse 17 and 18, we read these words Furthermore, A hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Leaders, if you want the people that you're leading to make sacrifices for the good of the group, you have to set the tone. It starts with you. For instance, if you expect those that you're leading in your workplace to work late on Friday night, you can't leave at noon on Friday to go play golf. It doesn't work very well. You have to set the tone. Generosity sacrifice justice has to start at the very top. Next, Nehemiah provided motivation to repent. In verse 9, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? If these people didn't repent, he reminds them, eventually you're going to have to answer to God. And that conversation's not going to go very well. Now, the fact that they were lending money to their Jewish brothers and sisters, that wasn't the issue. That's okay. You can lend money. Nehemiah lent money. That wasn't the issue. The problem was they were charging interest. And God made that clear. That, that wasn't to be. He forbade charging interest. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35-37. through 37. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, Help them as you would a foreigner and stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest, or sell them food at a profit. By charging them interest, they were not only hurting the life of the community, but in essence, they were thumbing their nose at God. The psalmist writes this in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Showing a person or reminding a person of God's will as revealed in Scripture often provides the motivation for that person to repent, especially if they have a heart for God. If they don't, it's probably not going to make a difference. If they do, that can inspire them to make a change in their life. Parents, as you lead your family, as you lead your kids, and you see them do things you know they shouldn't do, Oftentimes, the tendency, at least for me, was to just kind of harp at why they shouldn't do that or to say, you do this because this is the rule in our household, or you do this because I said so. What I think I missed too often was I needed to sit those boys down, open up the Word of God, and say, this is the way we live because this is the way Jesus Christ calls us to live. This is what God's will is for us as a people, It takes a little bit longer and a little more patience, but you get the word of God, the will of God into their hearts, and that provides the motivation for true change in a person's life. Now, Nehemiah didn't just call out their behavior as being wrong. He highlighted how it was having a negative impact on their witness. He basically says, hey, how's the rest of the world going to believe that this God we serve is kind and He's just and He's generous and He's merciful when we're treating each other in such a horrible way? I mean, when you behave like that, there's no way people around you are going to buy this. He reminds them that here's your role in the world. You are to image God. And that provides motivation to change, right? And I hope it does for us as well, because we bear that same responsibility and privilege. We are to image God to the world. And so often the way that we treat one another, whether it's in person or online or any other way, it has an impact on how pre-Christians view God. So, are we treating each other the way that would reflect the character of God? Are we being kind? Are we being gracious? Are we being just? Are we being generous? Are we looking out for one another instead of taking advantage of one another? Because that forms people's view of God. Then Nehemiah, he motivated, but he also called for a specific response, and it wasn't just a simple apology. He didn't just say, hey, you need to tell your brother sorry. You need to tell your sister sorry. It's more than that. He said this to the wealthy I want you to make full amends. He says in verse 11 Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So be honest. We live in a day and age where it seems like many people don't know how to make a simple apology. What do we often say? I'm sorry if you were offended. That doesn't heal anything. <laughs> you're sorry they were offended, or are you sorry you were offensive? You see, when you're wrong, the only way you begin to bring about healing is to admit that you are wrong and own the hurt that you've caused to somebody else. And then you do whatever is necessary to make things right. And thankfully, this is what the wealthy in Jerusalem were willing to do. I want you to listen to their response in verse 12. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Now, just to be sure these people weren't blowing smoke, Nehemiah calls in the priests and says, okay, I want you to make an oath before the priests. And then he uses an object lesson is a vivid reminder of what would happen to them if they accidentally forgot to fulfill their promise. And this was the object lesson, verse 13. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. So here's what I want us to really walk away with too, a truth that we can rest in. Those who are unjust, who never repent, will eventually experience God's justice. They're going to experience God's justice. Now, when you believe that, when you trust that, it changes you. And all of a sudden, your focus can move from retaliation, and you can be focused on reconciliation. That's what we need, isn't it? We need reconciliation. We need it in our homes. We need it in our churches. We need it in our country. May we be the type of people that lead towards reconciliation. We'll